0: Well, this morning, uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. We'll be finishing up chapter 3 today. Uh, To give you a little bit of a a sort of structure for where we are in the midst of this passage, we've been looking at what is known as the Cana cycle. These are these four major stories that are situated at the beginning of John's Gospel between two references to Cana. uh, Obviously, the first one being Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine at Cana, and then a second reference that will come about in Chapter 4. And the way John has selected these four important stories within this section to speak about these four important institutions within Judaism. The first of those being purification, we looked at Jesus turning water into wine. The second, the temple, as we talked about Jesus, not so much cleansing the temple, but clearing the temple, pointing to how he himself will be the new temple by his resurrection. And then last week we looked at, um, there's really two of these of actions Jesus does, water into wine, clearing the temple, and then two conversations, this conversation with Nicodemus, one of the Jewish teachers of the law and leaders in Jerusalem, probably a part of the Sanhedrin governing body. We looked at that last week. And then next week, the second of those major conversations in this section, the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, Hopefully you see the little structure of this, these two events, private wedding, public temple, these two conversations, Jewish leader, rejected Samaritan woman. Uh, John has clearly picked out these major events from Jesus' life to structure uh, this section, this Cana cycle. But today's story is actually none of those four major ones. There are other bits tucked within those four stories, like last week we saw John's commentary after the Nicodemus passage, and this week we're specifically uh, taken to the side after the Nicodemus conversation to a conversation that John the Baptist has with his disciples. We actually leave the Jesus story for a moment and switch back to John the Baptist for a conversation between John and his disciples. Really, that conversation is about who Jesus is and the realization that others around Jesus are misunderstanding, missing in the actions and the words that Jesus is doing and speaking. In that way, really this side story about John the Baptist and his followers is is in many ways a part of the Nicodemus story. In the same conversations that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, the themes that came up in that conversation are present here in the conversation John the Baptist has with his followers. You'll hear many of those overlapping themes come up when we read the passage. John the Baptist understands things that the great spiritual leader Nicodemus couldn't. And in that way, the two sort of set side by side as a way of comparing what Nicodemus misses, what John the Baptist understands in him. Those famous words from last week, those who believe will have everlasting life resurface here now in the words of John the Baptist, if you believe in Jesus. Part of what makes it hard for people to believe in Jesus throughout John's gospel and on into our own world today is that so often they misunderstand what Jesus was doing and saying. That's present here all over John's gospel, but just as present in the conversations we have with friends and family trying to explain what it is we believe when we follow Jesus. As important as believing is, one of the major themes of John's gospel, set right alongside that theme, is the theme of misunderstanding. As frequently as we read about belief, we also read about those who misunderstand Jesus. One of the commentators I was reading, uh, a sort of thematic commentator that was looking at the themes of the Gospel of John, calls this out as one of the major themes of the book, misunderstanding. And by his count, there are at least 25 examples of somebody misunderstanding what Jesus was doing or what Jesus was saying. That's a significant number considering John has 21 chapters. So basically, every chapter, more in some cases, of John's Gospel has this element of misunderstanding who Jesus is, what he's doing, and what he's saying. We've already seen some of those, if you think back over the past stories we've looked at. There was confusion amongst the Jewish leaders when he cleared the temple. Do you remember the conversation? Jesus said, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they say to him... How is that possible? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. This misunderstanding that John tells us, Jesus was really talking about his death and resurrection. There was also misunderstanding last week with Nicodemus. You remember Jesus has this talk of being born again or born from above, and Nicodemus says to him, "How can a man re-enter his mother's womb to be born a second time?" Jesus has to eventually say, Aren't you the teacher of the law in Israel? Shouldn't you understand these things, this misunderstanding on Nicodemus' part? And it's here in this story with John the Baptist and his followers. John the Baptist's followers come to John worried because they too are misunderstanding what it is that Jesus is doing and what it means for the work John had been doing now that Jesus is on the scene. John the Baptist understands with a remarkable clarity, though. In literature, sometimes we talk about a foil character or a foil plot. A foil character sets alongside a main character and draws out opposite contrasts. The foil is the exact opposite of another character, and this contrast between the two opposites is meant to help us understand each in contrast. In that way, John the Baptist works as a kind of foil to the Nicodemus story. So much of what confused Nicodemus, what he misunderstood, and what he gets wrong— John shows us the flip side. Where Nicodemus struggles to believe, John seems to believe emphatically with joy. Where Nicodemus misunderstands, John witnesses and bears testimony with prophetic clarity. If John's gospel is about misunderstanding Jesus, then John the Baptist is the clear witness, the voice in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord, From the very beginning, speaking with remarkable clarity and conviction, a pointed finger, behold, it's him, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. John always sees with a remarkable clarity exactly who Jesus is. And in this passage, what that means for his own followers and all those who would seek to believe and follow Jesus. He's Nicodemus' foil, but in many ways, he's the foil of all of those who misunderstand who Christ is. Nicodemus, a leader, a professional ruler on Scripture and teacher of Scripture, a Pharisee, confused. John the Baptist, a common Jew in the wilderness, camel cloth, eating locusts, clarity, Holy Spirit clarity like a prophet of old. The truth is not always what is in the headlines. The truth is not always what is on the main stage. The truth is not always what seems to the culture around it as common sense and obvious. And John the Baptist is our witness to that. That to see Jesus, to understand Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is often to question the way you've previously seen and perceived and followed, believed. So let's read it together. John chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. John three twenty-two. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salem. Um, this is a way of saying the springs near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going over to him. John answered, without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John chapter three. So what I want to do this morning is uh, I want to ask a few questions. What is the nature of this misunderstanding that John's disciples have about who Jesus is? What is this misunderstanding? Second, what does John see clearly that they can't? So what does John see? And then finally, this theme that comes back to us yet again, as John's words echo that from the verses last week, what does it mean to believe that if you believe you will have eternal life. So what is the nature of this misunderstanding? What does John see that they can't? Why does John pull them back to this key phrase, believe? So first of all, this misunderstanding. Um, John's disciples come to him because they learn that Jesus' disciples have been baptizing and that the crowds are beginning to grow. Specifically, we are told that it comes up in a debate with other Jews about purification. But John the Baptist had been drawing large crowds into the wilderness, particularly around his message of repentance and this practice of baptism, which was often practiced in Judaism as a part of purification, that you would enter one of these ritual baths to purify before you went to worship to make yourself clean. So this Jew has apparently come to John the Baptist's followers and they're having this discussion about what purification means, how it relates to John's baptism versus the routine purification baptisms. And at some point it comes up, probably brought up by this Jew, well, what about this other teacher in the Judean wilderness, Jesus? He's doing his own baptisms now. How is his baptism different than John's baptism, which is different than the baptisms we've been practicing? You can imagine how this debate would get spun up as they're trying to sort out who to follow and who's right and which baptism is the right baptism. You imagine how it might go. What about this Jesus guy? John seems positive about him. John's pointed to him before. John seems deferential to him. So does John matter? Is John going away? Should we follow Jesus? Why is he off doing his own thing? Why aren't the two working together? How is Jesus different than John? All the questions that begin to emerge. And all of them, pretty good questions. So John's disciples bring the questions to him. What are we to make of Jesus, who you pointed to, and the fact that he is now drawing his own crowds, picking up his own energy, his own PR, his own message spreading, maybe more than our message as your followers. John makes one thing very clear from the beginning. He makes it clear to those disciples and to us. He is not in competition with Jesus. Make no mistake, John says, I must decrease so that he can increase. The trajectory of these two movements is not hostility to one another or debate between one another. John is clear whatever it is I have been sent to do will decrease, but what he has come to do will only increase. That's a remarkable thing for a man to say who has been leading a renewal movement amongst Israel. John the Baptist is not just mentioned in the Gospels. We know about him from texts outside of the Bible. Specifically, the Jewish Roman historian Josephus writes about the works of John the Baptist. There is some evidence from the ancient world of people being disciples of John the Baptist as far away as places like Ephesus. John was having a massive impact on the way people were thinking about Judaism in his day and practicing it. This was a man who was up and coming, apparently with enough influence and enough of a crowd that Herod would seek to have him killed to quiet and silence any conviction that he was feeling from John's preaching against his ways. John was big enough to be a political threat to the king. John was a man with a crowd with influence, with status. For him to recognize that what would come of his movement was a dwindling away to nothing to give way to Christ is a pretty remarkable thing. But he realizes something important about himself and about Jesus. A few things. First, Jesus does not fit into the existing debates in which John and his followers find themselves in the midst of. This was common practice for the Judaism of his day to get together and discuss how is this piece of the law carried out, which kind of purification is allowed and which ones aren't. John was a part of this world, calling to repentance and a new kind of baptism. These men have come with exactly those kinds of questions. How are we to understand purification and baptism and your work? But to John, those questions when it comes to Jesus miss the whole point of what Jesus had come to do. Jesus had not come simply to take sides in the religious debates of his day. But also, Jesus doesn't come to validate any of their positions. John doesn't say, clearly, I'm right because Jesus is on my side, so follow me. Jesus is here to build something more than just a crowd, more than just influence. And John recognizes that the point is not who has the largest crowd— who has the ear of important people, who's making the biggest mark, that Jesus does not fit into these ways of measuring and thinking and evaluating. In some ways, what John the Baptist does with the questions brought to him is reject the premise. He doesn't talk about crowds in his answer. He doesn't talk about whose purification is the accurate one. He changes the discussion to those followers of his and says, Don't you recognize Jesus is here to do something entirely new, entirely different, something altogether better, not connected to what I do, but surpassing what I do, overwhelming what I do into something far better. That was hard for them to recognize, these followers of John, who, after all, had probably made major sacrifices to follow John, to go out into the wilderness, to join his teaching, to listen, to reshape their lives around the repentance he was calling for. That they had not gained something simply by following John, but had only gained if they could recognize what John was pointing out, which is Jesus. I don't think it's much easier for us today, either. It's easy, like it would have been for them, to claim that Jesus is on our side, that I clearly have the right view, the right stance in this argument, because after all, Jesus backs me up. It's easy to use Jesus to build a church, to do a work, to achieve some great goal that fulfills my own ambitions, my own desires, my own sense of possibility, and Jesus, my boost of power to help me get it done. It's easy to use Jesus as your own stick to beat back opponents. Well, clearly, you don't understand what Jesus taught, or you would think like I think. And maybe you're technically right across all of those, doing a good work. It's possible you do have the right position in that debate. But Jesus is not here simply to validate you, to take your side, to back you up. Jesus is here to do something new. To do something altogether different, something that fits so oddly into this world that people are constantly straining themselves to understand the full reality of what it means for God to be here in the flesh. The image that John uses is that Jesus is a groom. Now, I sometimes wish those passages would just translate it groom instead of bridegroom. Anytime you see bridegroom, just say groom. That helps the passage make more sense. What uh, John is saying is that Jesus is the groom and that what he is is the best man, that he is here to aid the groom in this wedding, this receiving of the bride, which is the purpose that the groom has come. The best man is not there simply for himself, not there to make himself look good, not there to gain something. If anybody's been a best man, you usually spend a lot of your own money and your own time, but you do it willingly because of the deep friendship with the groom. Your goal as the best man is to make the groom look good, to make sure the groom is prepared for the day, to make sure that it is about him, that he is the center of what is happening. And so John picks up this image as a way of describing what it means to see and recognize Jesus. Jesus has not come that he might make me look good, that he might build my influence, that he might help me attract a bigger crowd, that things in the world might be more about me. Jesus has come so that I might have an opportunity to be in on this work, this wedding feast, that I might glorify him and follow him and bear witness to him. That difference may seem subtle but it is critically important, and the thing that allows John to see who Jesus is when so many others misunderstand. It's the difference between Jesus following you and you following Jesus. It's the difference between Jesus following John's ministry and John recognizing that there's no such thing as John's ministry if it doesn't point to and follow Jesus. It's the difference between knowing a lot about Jesus and this word that John uses— Believing in him. The truth is, for all of their questions and curiosity, John's followers weren't all that interested in Jesus. They were interested in how Jesus fit into their identity as John's followers and the work John was doing. They were interested in how Jesus impacted what they had planned, how they understood who they understood themselves to be. Many accept Jesus for this. They find him interesting. They find that he fits into their life in an interesting way. Maybe Jesus becomes a way of accomplishing a career goal. Maybe Jesus is a source for helping me find true love. Maybe Jesus helps me make some moral improvements through his teaching. Maybe Jesus helps me relieve some pain or suffering or difficulty in my life. Maybe he helps me fix some societal problem that is important to me. We find ourselves wondering how Jesus could help me, how Jesus could get me where I'm trying to go. I wonder if Jesus or Christianity might be the right path for me towards this destination I'm imagining. John does something entirely different. John says, I decrease. John loosens his grip on his own ministry, his own future, his own success and influence and trajectory. John allows his crowd to dwindle, he shrinks from his influence in his center stage, so as Jesus might be more central, more obvious, more clear. I've always liked the way Eugene Peterson describes this process. He says, one way to define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. John is not obsessed with himself, his crowd, his ministry, his agenda. His interest is on Christ. He decreases that he might increase. For John, this is not depressing or demoralizing as we imagine it might be. I want you to go home and spend the rest of the week thinking about how you could just be smaller and more insignificant and less important. Well, that sounds like a great week ahead for me. But John characterizes this decreasing that he might increase as joy. It is like a friend who celebrates his best friend's wedding. John says that he sees Jesus drawing a crowd and this joy of mine is now complete. That to see Jesus glorified by others, to see Jesus increasing in status, his followers gaining is the greatest joy that John could possibly imagine for his work and his life. It's interesting that John turns to that image of Jesus as the groom. If you were with us when we looked at that sign, the first sign Jesus did at Cana, the turning of water into wine, you recognize how important this image of Jesus as groom is. It was that miracle language of wedding, banquet, Feast and caught up in it this description of joy, the way the Greek puts it here is actually a joyful joy. It's exuberant joy. It's celebratory joy that John is experiencing. Well, all of that is language straight out of that first act of Jesus' miracles water into wine, joy, wedding celebration, Jesus the groom. But there's more in John's words. Did you notice that he says that Jesus receives the Spirit of God without measure, verse 34? In some ways, maybe subtle, you can read that as new temple language. The Spirit, after all, had been the place, without measure, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence came down and rested on earth. The temple, as we talked about, the place where heaven and earth came together in the presence of God. But John says... That it is on Jesus that the Spirit of God rests without measure. The entirety of God's Spirit is on him. New temple. Or did you catch the language that John uses, verse 31? He who comes from above is above all. If you were with us last week, that's the exact same words that Jesus used when he talked to Nicodemus about being born again, born from above. In other words, John is using all of these images and language that Jesus has been using in places like his private conversation with Nicodemus. John understands all of the images and all of the descriptions, all of the signs and the significance of who Jesus is. He echoes all of this in this private conversation with his followers, this depth of image and analogy, Old Testament references, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. John perceives clearly all of the things that before others misunderstood and struggled to get. So what is John's final confession? His witness, having seen all of these things and articulated Jesus, his advice to his followers is this, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Last week, we ended the sermon by talking about this idea of belief. I specifically asked you the question and left it somewhat ambiguous. What do you believe? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I want to do a little more work on that word because it's going to be increasingly important as we work through John's gospel. I also want you to learn a new Greek word for today. So, uh, I very I often will give you Greek words, but I don't expect you to memorize any of them. This would be one if you wanted to learn a word that would be worth you learning because of how important it will be in John's gospel, but it is throughout the rest of the Bible as well. The Greek word is pistuo, pistuo. It's used here when John specifically talks about belief. Believe in the Son of God is the Greek word pistuo, pistuin. In the Son of God. But that same word gets translated differently in other places in the Bible for good reasons. John uses it here in the verb form, which we often translate believe. If I tell you to do this, go pistuo, I'm telling you go believe in Jesus. In that verb form, John uses it more than a hundred times in his gospel letter, it's more than the other gospels use it combined. It's almost on every page of the Gospel of John as we work through it. And if you go back and read what we've already covered, you will find it several times already been mentioned. John is, to put it, I think, frankly, obsessed with this idea of belief, pastuo. But pastuo can be translated into other words that will sound familiar to you. In the noun form, we often translate it faith. Faith and belief are the exact same word used in the New Testament. We also use it as an adjective, oftentimes translated as faithful or trustworthy. In English, you hear those words combined. If you have faith, you can be faithful. It's the same word in Greek. But we also sometimes translate it as a verb to entrust. This came before the Nicodemus story. Remember, there was this intro where it says that many believed in Jesus, but he did not entrust himself to them. It's actually the exact same word in Greek. Many believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in them, or many trusted Jesus, but he did not trust himself to them. It's the same word. So in other words, this pastuo word has this range of meaning from faith to faithful to believe to belief to trustworthiness to trust. It's all the same word that's getting used by Paul, by John, by the other gospel writers. So the more important question than the trivia of knowing what word it is in Greek is what do they mean by this word, believe in the Son of God, which is to ask the question, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus, which is something for those of us who have probably said we do, would be worth us having a good working definition for what it means. What does it mean for us to be people who believe, people who have faith in Jesus? John's goal is not just to straighten out what they believe about Jesus, John the Baptist is not telling those disciples, you just need to get your facts right about Jesus, understand who he is, get all the Old Testament references we've been doing, and you're good. No, he doesn't call them to facts or knowledge of Jesus, but he calls them to this word, believe. After all, do you remember that scene in one of the Gospels when Jesus encountered a group of demons and they immediately began to speak out saying, we know exactly who you are, son of man, and Jesus silenced them. These demonic voices understood and perceived the identity of Jesus, theologically accurate identity of Jesus. But that knowledge alone is not the same thing as faith or believing. You could confess that Jesus is God. You can have facts about Jesus being born of a virgin, crucified, resurrected on the third day. You can ascribe to those details, he's the Son of God. But at that point, you haven't done much more than what the demons were able to vocalize to Jesus, facts. What John the Baptist is calling for here, and what John the Gospel writer is so obsessed with, is this idea of belief, faith in Jesus, not just information. But what does it mean, then, to go beyond this knowing about Jesus to believing in Jesus? Um, I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think gives us some helpful language for understanding what this looks like. Lewis wrote this, To have faith in Christ, this is our word, believe in Christ, means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person. Notice that's our same language, faith, believe. There's no use in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, It must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order that you might be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. What I heard in Lewis's quote this week that stood out to me was this conflict that John the Baptist's followers were in. We want to get things right. We want to get to heaven. We want to obey the way we should. How does Jesus fit into these goals that we have? Here, Lewis says, that's the wrong way of thinking about belief. That belief is much more like trusting someone and by doing it, taking their advice and entrusting the outcomes of things to come by following their advice, by seeing the way this friend has sacrificed and given to you, and so therefore trusting them because of it. If you say that you trust a person, which is, by the way, what is happening when John says pistuo, faith, believe, trust, same word. If you say that you trust a person, then shouldn't your life reflect taking their advice? Trusting them, taking what they've given to you, spoken to you, and living it, putting it into practice. Trust. Well, it means you live as if what he has already done for you is something that you can trust and build your life on. He saved you. He's offered you eternal life. Does your life reflect those things as something you trust him for? In many ways, if you want a good working definition of what faith means, I think the word trust is a one that meets the road in the ways we actually live. To have faith in Jesus is not just to know about him, to ascribe facts to him. To have faith in Jesus is to trust him and to live in a way that demonstrates a willingness to put your trust in him. To live as if who he is and what he said and what he has offered is true. Frederick Biegner is another well-known Christian writer who has a great example. He takes this image of a friend that Lewis draws upon and he fleshes it out in, I think, even more helpful ways. The idea, then, of trusting someone is not strictly mystical or religious in the way that we often think of faith, but faith as trusting sorts things out in the real obstacles and challenges of the way that we live. And Begner uses this example of friendship. He says... I have faith that my friend is my friend. It is possible that all his motives are ulterior. It's possible that what he's really secretly drawn to me is for my wife or my money or my possessions. But there's something about the way I feel when he's around, about the way he looks me in the eyes, about the way we can talk to each other without pretense and be silent without embarrassment, that makes me willing to put my life in his hands, as I do each time I call him friend. Bigner says, I can't prove the friendship of my friend. When I experience it, I don't need to prove it. When I don't experience it, no proof will do. If I tried to put this friendship to a test somehow, the test itself would queer the friendship I was testing. And so it is with the goodness of receiving God. I think that's a helpful way of thinking about what it means to believe, to trust, to put yourself in the hands of someone else, the vulnerability of it, but the confidence of it. We all know that the moment we go trying to test someone's love, someone's friendship, is the moment that we ruin the thing that we're trying to test, which is what Beekner points out, and so it is with God. God, before I'm willing to trust you, I would like to test your trustworthiness, and then I'll decide if I can trust you. Well, the entire idea of trust collapses. It can't exist where such tests are first demanded. It no longer is trust. So Beekner uses this image of a friend as a way of drawing out what it means to believe. To have faith. It means that we trust. When John calls you to believe in Jesus and have eternal life, he is not calling you to get all of your theological ducks in a row, that if you could master a, a theological exam on who Jesus is, then you could prove that you are his follower, that you believe. He's not asking you to fill out paperwork and sign on a theological dotted line so that everybody will know. You are a part of the in-group. He's not asking you to clean yourself up, get your moral act together, and be somebody in which God might like to have as a follower. Many of those things may come. You may sign on the dotted line. Hopefully you get your act together. Hopefully your theology gets straightened out. But it does so because you have first made the decision to entrust yourself to him. To trust your life, your possessions, your future, your career, your emotional well-being, your financial well-being, your hopes, your fears. To believe in him is to say, I trust you, I entrust myself into your hands. It's easy to acknowledge Jesus without actually trusting him. Many of us live that way for whole periods of time, calling ourselves his followers, saying that we're Christians, but when the rubber meets the road, not willing to trust him with the things that matter most to us. You can get the answers right and not actually mean it, not actually live it. Can you decrease so that he might increase? Do you trust him enough to give up the things that you imagine you need to protect in order to receive something better from him? Is that not what John is doing as his influence and the crowds and his followers begin to slip away from him? He trusts Jesus, believes in Jesus, and for it receives a kind of life that followers and status and influence could never give. And he asks you the question, can you believe? Can you trust? We're not done with that question from John's gospel. As I said, he uses the word a hundred (laughs) times. We're three chapters in. This is going to come up over and over in John's gospel as he pushes those who are reading and listening to his words, you and I, some 2,000 years later, into that same question. Do I really believe? And if I believe, how much can I trust? How much can I decrease? How much can I let go of in order to receive and trust and follow him? Let me wrap it up with this. The novelist Ernest Hemingway, by no means a theologian of the church, had a great line where he said, the best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. The best way to find out about what it means to have faith in Jesus is to put your faith in Jesus. That sounds risky, counterintuitive, illogical. But so it is with any true friendship or relationship, and so it is ultimately with receiving Christ. The only way in is to believe. The only way to be a part is to trust. The only way to receive is to sacrifice. The only way to have life is to die to yourself. The only way to experience that increase is for you to decrease. So we say to God, I trust you. I allow myself to decrease. I hold more loosely my dreams and desires and passions and fears. I hand them over to you because I trust you. I'm going to start Acting like it, living like it, stepping out on the line, going a little further out on that limb, trusting you, improving that trust by the way I follow. I believe in you, John's language, I have trust in you, our way of living it out. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning how easy it is to get sucked into these debates and these questions that John the Baptist's followers were caught up in. God, many of them questions that do matter. Many of them questions that we do need clarity on and that we should work to address. But God, we also see the ways in which those questions distract us from you. That They can be about us, that our whole life can be about us. That the way that we practice this religion can be about protecting myself and securing things for myself and keeping control. But God, we see in John the Baptist a remarkable kind of clarity that I want for myself. That we see you act, that we hear your words. By your Spirit, we find ourselves participants in the fullness who you are and what you're doing that our hearts burst with joy gladly setting aside our own possessions and our own plans and our own desires that we might glorify you like that best man celebrating you proclaiming you worshiping you that our joy is to receive you not just to receive from you Think of those words from the New Testament. God, I believe, help my unbelief. God, we trust you, but we know there are ways in our lives to trust you more. We pray that your spirit would lead us in that work. Greater faith, greater trust, deeper belief, lived out. Loosen our grips, God. Soften our hearts. Teach us what it is to see you first, to not be a part of this crowd that misunderstands and distorts and scratches their head and protects, demands answers to our own questions, but a group like John who humble themselves and see you with divine clarity and follow and trust you and sacrifice all things and find in it still more and more and more joy. Like that wedding feast So we worship you this morning. We do it as a way of proclaiming our trust in you. We do it in a way in which your spirit is given space and room to convict, to point out things in our life that are holding us back, that we might lay them at your feet, our crowns and our possessions, our riches and our control, to follow you more, to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen.